seated. If you will, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 18. Once again, page 809 in your pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 18. 809. The portion of scripture that we will spend the most time on are verses 23 to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, but to pick it up kind of from where I left off last time I spoke, to go right to where I'm teaching today, I want you guys to have some sort of context, especially the people who weren't here last time that I spoke. So my three points uh, for this morning's sermon are point number one, many are called, point number two, few are chosen, and point number three, the chosen are the poor in spirit. The chosen are the poor in spirit. This is the unchanging word of God. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, meaning Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues proclaim, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, Matthew 5, 1, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. At this time, I ask you to play, pay, pray with me and for me. Father, I thank you for this opportunity once again to bring forth your word to your people um, and those in our midst, Lord God. May I speak clearly, may I speak boldly, may I speak accurately, Father, and may your spirit change hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Point number one, many are called. When we la last left off, uh, we spoke of how Jesus didn't wait for potential disciples to choose him, but how he initiated the action and chose Andrew, Peter, James, and John to follow him as he promised to make them fishers of men. And I mentioned that Jesus specifically emphasizes that they should follow him, not as they attempted to do after his baptism when they started out following him and then something happened and they, 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 they fell off according to the harmonization of the four gospels. 
But at this time, he was telling them to leave their uh, occupations permanently, their secular work, just to leave it and follow him and be his constant disciples. So that by continually hearing his doctrine and seeing his miracles, they would be qualified to become his apostles to the world, according to the qualifications listed in Acts chapter 1, verses 20. Uh, verses 21 and 22. And then we spoke of how at one point in time in parts of Europe and America, there was no higher calling than for a man to assume the office of preacher. And how preaching the good news that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners, to save sinners, took the utmost priority in society. And how people would travel great distances to hear sound biblical preaching. And we contrasted that with today where people won't even cross the street to hear sound biblical preaching. And then I ended the sermon by bringing forth the similarities between the apostle Peter and the prophet Isaiah. And their reaction after Jesus revealed a glimpse of his glory to both of them. And we took a look at Luke's version of this account in chapter 5 of Luke and saw how Peter was convicted of his sinfulness in doubting uh, Jesus. And then I referenced Isaiah chapter 6 and spoke of how Isaiah was convicted of his sinfulness of having unclean lips. But after acknowledging and confessing their sinful acts, they both were encouraged by the Lord and they both were used mightily by God. Side note. Isn't that how it's supposed to work, right? We're going along in our sinful ways, forgetting that we have been purchased. We have been snatched from sin by God. And then God reveals himself to us in some way through scripture, through somebody who tells you a word of, listen, my brother, listen, my sister. That is not how we should live according to how The word of God says a child of God should represent him on the earth. Not being judgmental, not to that degree where it's of me, but only judging by the word of God, by trying to guide us, revealing God to us. Then we should be convicted because we see who he is and we see who we are and who we're supposed to be. So today, as we dig into the next few verses, we see Jesus, the master fisherman, saving people from sin and sickness and convicting them for his glory and for his kingdom. So let's pick it up. Let's pick it up in verse 23. In verse 23 of Matthew chapter 4, we read, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. From this verse, we learn that at this time, Jesus was busy teaching proclaiming the gospel, and healing throughout all Galilee. And these were the three main aspects of Christ's public ministry, even proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in the Jewish synagogue. Now remember, synagogues were built in any place throughout all Israel where there were at least 10 men, 10 men who were willing to have a formal place of worship. It was a place where the Old Testament was read, prayers were Offered, the scriptures were expounded upon, and it was done either by the officer of the synagogue or someone that the officer of the synagogue invited to speak. When Jesus visited the synagogues, 
He used the Old Testament to show himself, to, to, to preach the gospel, at least until they would put him out, right? As they did in Luke chapter 4, which we covered a few messages ago. But that did not stop his ministry. In verse 24, we read, So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Historically, we know that ordinary uh, rabbis, they, 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 they led and taught a few disciples, right? And the men of the Qumran withdrew into the desert with a handful of the pure. But Jesus waded into the masses because many are called. And if by saying throughout all Syria, the writer Matthew means all the different provinces of Syria, Jesus' fame would have been exceedingly great. It could have been hyperbole, which is a figure of speech uh, for emphasis or effect, but it doesn't have to be. And I say, considering the number and greatness of the miracles which he performed, it would not have been beyond belief. Why? Because people want to live. People want to be healed. Right? Even in our day, in our day, just look at all of the commercials promoting some new prescription drug to heal you of whatever. The list of side effects are longer than my arms, but people are still willing to risk it because they want to live. They want to be healed. So it's possible the people of Jesus' day would have traveled long distances in order to be healed or to bring him all their sick, demon-oppressed people in order for some miracle to take place. I am not ready for my loved ones to leave me. And I want you to think of the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7. Right, Phoenicia, Phoenicia was part of the province of Syria, so she traveled a great way to have Jesus cast a demon out of her daughter. Her daughter was back home, but this woman had the faith that all she has to do is go before Jesus, and he is able to do a long-distance healing for her daughter. And initially, we know that she was rebuffed, but she traveled a long way, and she was not going to be turned back easily. So she said, Lord, even the dogs under the table, even they eat the, the, the crumbs from the children. And because of her persistence, her, for, her, her faith, her humility, Jesus healed her daughter. And I like the way Matthew Henry summed up uh, Jesus' ministry when he addresses verse uh, 24. He wrote, three diseases or conditions are named. Paralytics, which is the greatest weakness of the body. Seizures, which is the greatest malady of the mind. And those oppressed by demons, which is the greatest misery and calamity of both. Yet Christ healed all. And thus by uh, curing bodily diseases showed that his great errand into the world was to cure spiritual maladies. Sin is the sickness, disease, and torment of the soul. Christ came to take away sin and so to heal the soul, end quote. Not only did Jesus heal all who came from the furthest regions of Syria, which is the area immediately north of Galilee, but verse 25 informs us that great crowds also followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This is truly amazing. I want you to think about the Decapolis. 
right? The Decapolis was composed of 10 cities populated mostly by Greeks. That's why in Luke chapter 8, when Jesus went into the country of the Gadarenes slash Gerasenes, which is one of the of those cities, we see the herding of pigs. And we know that's clearly not a Jewish occupation. These people were following Jesus, yes. Yes, some were following him for miracles. Some were following, following him for food. But there was a remnant separated by God who followed him just for him, just for who he was, right? Um, like the man there who was formerly uh, demon-possessed and lived among the tombs. Luke chapter 8, verse 38 says, that man begged to be with Jesus. But Jesus said, no, I need you to stay here and declare how much God has done for you. And then the scripture says, he went away and proclaimed throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. And I don't know if you notice, but from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11, right before the great white throne judgment, there is always only a remnant separated by God for his glory. This brings us to point number two. Few are chosen. These are the called out ones, if you will. Whether it's Noah and his family being separated from the world, or Abram and a part of his family separated from the Chaldeans and the rest of their pagan ways. Or Lot and his daughters separated from Sodom. Or Jacob separated from Esau. Or Joseph separated from his brothers. Or Joshua and Caleb separated from the rest of the spies. And the only two people over the age of 19 who left Egypt and were able to enter the promised land. So forth and so on. It is always only a remnant separated by God from the whole according to God's holy will and God's good pleasure. It's a picture of sanctification, which means to be separated from sin unto holiness, which is to be set apart from the world's systems and from the world's ways. But I don't like that. It's too restrictive, some of you might say. Question. Are you sanctified? If the answer is yes, then you're separated by God. You're separated unto God for his glory, for his purpose. Your life is no longer your own. You have been bought at a price. Our job as fishers of people for the kingdom is not to try to figure out who the remnant or elect are, but to tell the world the good news of Jesus Christ by sharing the whole counsel of God, not just the parts we like. Jesus is still calling people to himself, using us to tell all Christ died to, to save sinners. That's the heart of the gospel, and the gospel is the heart of the Bible. Everything in scripture is either preparation for the gospel, presentation of the gospel, or participation in the gospel. In the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, the gospel, and only the gospel, provides the ultimate solution for sin and spiritual bankruptcy. All who place their trust in Christ alone for their salvation will spend an eternity marveling that the holy, transcendent, 
God of the universe would choose to crush his only son for their sake. So who he chooses to sanctify is his business and his right. The Lord told Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Then the apostle Paul surmises in Romans chapter 9 and verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. But I don't like that. It's too restrictive, some of you still might say. But here's the thing. If we think people are basically good, then we think people have the ability to choose God. When they wise up, when they get frustrated with the uh, hard knocks of life, or whenever they get around to it, whenever they, you know, just you know, get to that point where, hey, I'm going to choose God today. However, if we believe that there are none righteous, no, not one, and no one understands or seeks for God, as scripture tells us in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, and that all people before coming to Christ are dead in trespasses and sins, following the course of the world and following Satan and are by nature children of wrath, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, then it only follows that it cannot depend on human will or exertion, as scripture says, but on God who has mercy. And so we'll see certain places in the Bible, like Joshua 24, 15, and says, well, the Lord says, choose ye, you know, whom you will serve on this day. But however, when we take the whole of what he's saying and looking at the context that those people were exceedingly wicked when Joshua was, write, was writing, and then we look at the verses before and after, and even that very, that very verse, the choice isn't between God and the rest of the world. Look at it close. The choice, he says, uh, if it seems evil in your sight to follow the world, then choose ye whom this day you will serve, whether it's the gods, small g, plural, of your fathers on the other side of the river or the god of the Ammonites. Two false choices, two false gods. It's the exact opposite of um, this total free will regardless of our makeup, our nature. It's this, you cannot serve God. I am here in the midst of you from Egypt to now. I have been here through the whole time and you guys are evil based on your composition. So here's the thing, me and my house, we're gonna follow the Lord. But you guys, you can't follow the Lord because you are evil. So I beg that you would go back and look at that passage and the other passages that you have been holding on to, thinking that man can do what it is not possible for him to do until the Lord does something in him first. To be a fisher of men and a fisher of women is a great work. And it calls for unflinching commitment to the scriptures. To the scriptures. We don't know who and we don't know when someone will turn to Jesus by the effectual call of God.
So we just throw out the seed and we pray. We evangelize, we share the word of God, and we hope, trusting God, that by his power, his timing, his wisdom, he will touch our family members, those closest to us, that he would work in, in, in a way of regenerating our neighbors so that now he has turned the light on, so to speak. He has given them a new heart from the inside so that for the 50th time, when you share the gospel, now they get it. Now they get it. God has done a work inside of them. He has removed the blinders. He has done uh, spiritually what he did for Lazarus physically. Come forth. Lazarus had no choice. Before that, Lazarus was dead. He could do nothing. As we move into chapter 5, remembering that in the original manuscripts, there were no chapter breaks is so important. That's one of the reasons I didn't do an intro to the Beatitudes, right? Sometimes that will uh, put this, this uh, invisible barrier in our minds. Like this is a totally taken from, you know, just out of the air as opposed to following what just happened in chapter 4, right? With all of the miraculous healings that Jesus did, that he administered at the end of chapter 4, his popularity was off the charts, However, he desired disciples and not crowds. So what does he do according to chapter, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2? Seeing the great crowds, he went up on the mountain and sat down. And when his disciples came to him, the scripture says he began to teach them. I, I don't want you to miss that. The crowds were free to listen, but he began to teach his disciples he began to teach them. There were those in the crowd that God would regenerate later. But at this time, I do not want to just gloss over that because the next uh, three chapters, five, six, and seven, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the greatest, or the greatest, some say, sermon ever given, also known as the Beatitudes, taken from the Latin Beatitudo, meaning blessings. But the thing is, this is not a list of ways to make it into heaven. This is a list of characteristics showing those who are already on the road to heaven. These are things that the people of God already have, the values, the mindset, the outlook that God has placed in them. That's why each beatitude begins with the words, blessed are, and not Blessed will you be if you do. But blessed are. Right? So in the very first beatitude, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that brings us to point number three. The chosen are the poor in spirit. The Greek term translated uh, blessed is makarios. Makarios, meaning happy, fortunate, or blissful. But since Jesus says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the meek, it can't be the same definition that we give to happiness. 
or to being happy. You know, when, when, when we're eating some shrimp and lobster, we get happy. Some of you uh, start doing a little dance when you're eating something good, like, like some of you who came out and you ate some of my wife's cassava cake. You're like, ooh, and you're, you, you are happy, right? And food has that effect, that day-to-day momentary happiness, but this is something deeper than that. What Jesus is speaking of by using the word makarios, he is saying um, you are, or these people are in a state of blissfulness. And this state endures through persecution. It endures through the hardships of your life. A state of, 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 of knowing you are fortunate out of the billions of people that pass through this life God said, Joel, right? God just called people before he said, let there be light. Right? Revelation 13 and 8 and 17 and 8. You are special in God's sight. And when you read the word of God, you look at it and it just blows your mind. What you mean to God. What he has set up through your ancestors. It wasn't by chance. It wasn't you just rolled out of bed feeling good and said, I think I'm going to follow God today because that's my choice. No, when you see what God has done and what God will do for you, it causes this joy. It causes this happiness that says, right now, I don't feel good, but I know God loves me. And God has brought me to this place right here for a purpose. Every pain, there's something behind it. There's some molding going on in your heart, in your mind. It is not wasted. It is not, it is not random. I do pray that I could just deposit that into you. I could just put that into you so that when you're shaking because you are going through the worst time of your life, you would say, I know God is doing something in me. I don't know what it is, but I trust him. That comes from studying the word of God and just saying, I believe it. I believe it. I, you know, you may say, I don't think election is fair, but it's biblical. Why? Because nobody would choose God without it. We just won't. It's not in us. And scripture over and over tells us this. You don't want him. You don't understand him. You think it's a waste of time. You're saying, why would I ever give up the things that make me feel good in order to do things that people don't appreciate. Why would I ever do that? God has to say, let me change you so that you can see you were here for my son's glory and my son's glory points to my glory and the only way you come to me is through him, through his blood. He had to die for you. You were so wicked. If we were good, he wouldn't have had to come and die. And the scripture over and over shouts this at us, whether it's somebody's life in a historical narrative or whether it's a doctrinal teaching, it is from Genesis to Revelation. Being a child of God means you have the favor of God upon your life, regardless of your circumstances. That's why Psalms chapter 30 and verse 5 tells us his anger is but for a moment but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may endure for the night, but what happens? Joy comes in the morning. We get stuck in the night and we stay there and we act like we're always gonna be in that situation. 
We act like nothing is ever going to change because we don't do a historical fact check. Do a historical fact check on your life. Go back 10 years, go back five years, go back last year when you were doing bad. But you're here. Who brought you here? Was it your strength? Was it your wisdom? Or was it God? And you say, God has brought me this far. I trust him. He's going to keep me going because he loves me. Right? Being a child of God means the Holy Spirit has been granted to us, works within us. Why? To confirm the validity of our adoption by the fruit he produces through us and the power he provides for us. So we ought to be interested in Jesus' concept of happiness and not the world's. As a society, we seek happiness at all costs. Integrity, out the window. Purity, maybe tomorrow, but not tonight. Repentance, don't preach at me. When it comes to having even the slightest chance of happiness, we are willing to forsake everything. All morality, all honor. Whatever happened to honor, right? Just doing the right thing. What happened to that? Jesus is teaching that real happiness belongs to those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. Those people have been brought to a place where they now place all of their faith, all of their hope, all of their strength in Jesus, the one who grants eternal riches, true riches. What we are worth are based on his worth. He's invaluable. We're in poverty. I believe Jesus begins, blessed are the poor in spirit, because this beatitude is the soil from which all of the other beatitudes grow. For instance, next he says, blessed are those who mourn. But who's going to mourn unless they see how spiritually bankrupt they are? And after that, he says, blessed are the meek. But who's going to be meek towards another person until they see they have been reduced to nothing according to God's high and holy standard of righteousness? This beatitude is actually essential to the rest of his Sermon on the Mount. How do you cast off lust, anger, a heart that's quick to divorce, swearing, retaliation, and increase in the ability to love your neighbor? And that's the second half of Matthew chapter 5 I just gave you. By having a disposition of humility based on the recognition of your spiritual poverty. And once again, this beatitude, or all of the beatitudes, I should say, demonstrate that Jesus' concept of what it is to be blessed is antithetical to the worldly ideas held by most in their pursuit of happiness. But to be poor in spirit, there's something that irritates man. To be poor in any way, shape, or form is to be scorned and avoided. The world says happiness is found in riches, in leisure, in pleasure, in abundance. But in reality, the very thing the world is looking for comes only from their creator, from their maker. 
The very thing the world is looking for without knowing it, without understanding how to get it, without believing when they hear it, is union with Christ. Union with Christ. Right? That helps us to see everything from an eternal perspective where we see our greatest trials as light, momentary afflictions that are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We look to the things that are unseen, not the things that are seen. The things that are, that are, that are seen, they're temporal. You're happy with them today and they're gone tomorrow. But the things that are unseen, the things that it takes faith to believe, those things are, they, 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 they're eternal. They are what keeps us, the things that we do not see, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. So now in your mind's eye, I want you to go back to Matthew chapter 5, right? Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. We see that Jesus has the eyes and the ears of this oppressed people who were looking to the things that were seen. Matthew chapter 4 ends by telling us, great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. If there was ever a time to rise up and attempt to overthrow Rome, this is it. That's what the Jewish population, that's what they were looking for. Their Messiah to come and take the seat of David, right? And to lead them above all of the other nations. They're like, yes, let's go. This is it. Let's go. Let's do this. If his agenda was to change the socioeconomic uh, expectations of the people and the structure of the nation, now is the time. But what does Jesus say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine the conversations among the crowd? What? What did he just say? What Jesus is doing for them and now for us is he's getting them to see that the problem is not out there, but in here. The problem is within. What are you looking for? What, what do you think is going to bring you real joy? Me conquering Rome and leading you guys above economically and then dying and go to hell? Or hearing my words and being changed by the seed I'm planting through the power of the Holy Spirit working in me to bring salvation eternally? What is more important to them? And the question is, what is more important to you? What are you looking for? Once again, conquering the world is not going to take care of your lust, your anger, your heart that's quick to divorce, your swearing, your retaliation, or your hatred for your brother. But a new heart does that. And once again, as you keep reading, we may get to it in a couple of years. That's the second half of Matthew chapter 5. That he's, he's, he's building them up. He's building them up, saying, this is what it looks like. Seek this. 
Those who have a disposition of humility based on the recognition of their spiritual poverty before God have a constant desire to conquer their flesh. They fight against self-sufficiency and agree with God that they have absolutely nothing of worth to offer him to make them worthy of salvation. And I wonder, I just wonder how many of us acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy apart from God, apart from Christ. How many of us sometimes think we are or can be good enough to make it into the kingdom of heaven, which is the opposite of what it is to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is the tax collector praying in the temple in Luke chapter 18 who couldn't even look up to God but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. To be poor in spirit is Ezra in the temple standing before God in Ezra chapter 9. He said, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Acknowledging that we are poor in spirit because of our propensity to sin, because we're sinners by nature, causes us to run as fast as we can to the cross and stay there because that's where our substitute our Savior, and our Sovereign Lord resides. That stands in stark contrast to those who think their works of righteousness earned them a home in heaven, like those at the church of Laodicea, who said, I am rich and have prospered and need nothing. Jesus said, on the contrary, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You need to buy from me so you'll have true riches, eternal riches. The poor in spirit recognize they have nothing in their hands to bring, so only to the cross they cling. I like the way Benson's commentary describes the poor in spirit and the reason for their blessedness. He writes, these are those who are truly humble and are sensible of their spiritual poverty, of their ignorance and sinfulness, their guilt, their depravity and weakness, their frailty and morality, and who, therefore, whatever their outward situation in life may be, however affluent and exalted, think lowly of themselves. Yet they are happy because their humility renders them teachable, submissive, resigned, patient, contented and cheerful in all estates and it enables them to receive prosperity or adversity, health or sickness, ease or pain, life or death with an equal mind. They are happy because theirs is the kingdom of heaven, end quote. Isn't this what the Apostle Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 11 and 12, when he wrote, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In every and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Although he was imprisoned in Rome at the time. Although the circumstances weren't the best, 
he learned what it is. His union with Christ brought this to him, brought this to his mind and said, I am a conqueror. I am more than a conqueror. Because he chose to see the things that are unseen. Jesus said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that is the answer. You possess the kingdom, the present inward kingdom where there's righteousness, peace, joy, and eternal happiness through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That is what lifts us up out of overwhelming sorrow, which is the very things that overcome the world. In this already not yet tension, we are truly blessed. The kingdom of heaven now rules within us, but at the same time, we are looking for the kingdom to come according to the promise of a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I pray this promise will grab a hold of you. I pray you will hold on to this promise. Life is going to get harder. How do I know that? Am I just, you know, am I prophesying right now from out of the sky? No, the Bible says that. The word of God says that. And if I don't hold on to the anchor of Christ, if I don't hold on to the word of God, I'm going to blow with my feelings. I'm going to fly in the air and float around with the waves of turbulence that this world is going to bring. I pray that you would hold on to Christ, that you would not follow the culture, that you would stand on the word of God. I pray you would reach out to the brothers and sisters, the grace. This is one of the graces that God has given us, brothers and sisters in Christ. Not only when life gets hard, but to build relationships now while the, while the winds are calm establishing these structures around you that you know somebody you can call, someone that you can be an encouragement with. Just because you're not going through anything doesn't mean you shouldn't reach out to people. That's the best time to reach out to someone else who may be hurting. How are you doing? How can I pray for you? Let me buy you lunch. Let's hang out. Let's get together. Let's read the word. Do you need anything practical? How can I love you better? That is the question. That's what I want you to hold in your heart from this sermon. How can I love you better? Why? Because I am spiritually bankrupt and Christ loves me. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your, might, your, your mighty power that lifts us up, that keeps us. I thank you, Lord, that you have done a work in those who belong to you so that we can do the things we don't always feel like doing because it's for your glory, not ours. No longer do we want to be glory thieves, but we want to just lift up your holy name and let people know that I am nothing apart from Christ. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.